Hello, this is Comeback, this is Connor, this is episode 133. My guest today is Professor Damien Hughes. Damien has a practical and academic background within sport, organizational development and change psychology. He co-hosts the High Performance Podcast with BT Sport presenter Jake Humphrey, interviewing a range of elite performers from sport, business and beyond. These include Johnny Wilkinson, Rhea Ferdinand, Sir Chris Hoy and Gareth Southgate. Damien's body of work include The Barcelona Way, How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson, Liquid Thinking and How to Change Absolutely Anything. We're going to talk today about his work and about creating high performance habits in a winning culture. Damien, how are you? I'm great, thanks Connor. Thank you for the invitation and thanks for the really kind introduction. Yeah, it's a pleasure, mate. Do you mind telling me a bit about your background? I believe you were exposed to elite sport at a young age, being around a boxing gym. Yeah, good research. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in North Manchester, um, and you're right that um, my background was a little bit unusual, I suppose, in many ways, because I grew up in a boxing gym. That was um, it was a gym that my father had founded before I was even born. So uh, that was my playground from as far back as I can remember. I'm sure there's people listening to this that maybe have a sort of a predetermined image of what those kind of boxing gyms can be like in sort of tough inner city areas where there's maybe high levels of crime and deprivation. And this fits the stereotype in many ways, but the boxing gym was a real sanctuary in quite a beleaguered community. So it was about giving people the chance to come in and learn boxing skills, but the vast majority of them kind of weren't people that ever had an intention of stepping into a boxing ring. It was about going into a place where they were respected, where they could feel that they could believe, uh, belong, where they felt that they could be treated with courtesy and dignity. So the, those two things combined in many ways to influence my own subsequent career. So I was around high performance in terms of guys going off to Olympic Games and going on to become sort of elite world champion boxers. So I saw a lot of the work that happened in the shadows there. But equally, I was also exposed to what a culture was, a high-performing culture was. And that now informs a lot of the work that I do of working with leaders to, uh, uh, to create similar uh, cultures where people can flourish and perform at the best. Yeah, and how would you describe exactly what you do? What would your job titles be? Well, there's probably three lenses to answer that question, uh, Connor. So uh, one of the roles I do, I'm a visiting professor at Manchester Met University. and My area is in organisational psychology and change. So to explain that, that's looking at how teams come together, how they form, and then how they built to be robust enough to cope with the pressures that change inevitably brings. Another part of the job that I do is the practical side of it. You mentioned in your introduction is that uh, I work as a consultant across a wide range of industries from sport, business and education, working with leaders to implement that research and those understandings and make cultures that are high performing. And then the third job I do is I've got a real passion for for writing and trying to take some of these ideas and lessons and insights and trying to, write them in a way that's compelling and interesting for people to understand how they can do it themselves. So the third uh, aspect of my work is I write. And as you mentioned, again, in your kind introduction, uh, I co-host a podcast series with 
my friend and colleague uh, Jay Comfrey called the High Performance Podcast, where we go after these same things of trying to explain how high performance can be achieved in 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 different cultures and different circumstances. Yeah, I see. I do want to touch upon the podcast later on, but firstly, yeah. do we mind talking a bit about the writing you've done? Was your first book Liquid Thinking? Yeah, yeah, it was. So uh, that's nearly 18 years old now. So uh, the story behind Liquid Thinking might be of interest to some of your readers, especially in this idea of the whole theme of your series around coming back from adversity and, um, and, and the lessons learned in that. So I was working, um, I went into industry for a while after I'd left uni and I'd been working as a coach. And then I went into industry and one of the jobs I had was uh, I was in charge of uh, three factories just outside of uh, Liverpool in a place called Port Sunlight. And a big part of my role there was around turning around performance. So uh, looking at the organizational psychology of how you go about doing that. And over three years, I was incredibly fortunate to work with a team that did indeed turn around performance quite dramatically. And when I knew that I was going to move on, I wanted to leave the guys with almost like a blueprint of how we'd done it that uh, could explain it so they could pass it on and it almost became part of our legacy of how do we sustain it. And I started looking to give the guys a book to gift it with some of the insights. And my challenge was that these guys didn't come from... um, an academic background. So if you gave them a book that required them uh, to understand references and research like that, they wouldn't have read it. But equally, they were pretty hard-bitten, cynical blokes that they wouldn't read something if they felt it wasn't of substance either. So I, I, I was caught between two still. So I, I, in the end, I went, I'm going to write the book myself. So uh, I ended up sort of, it, it was like the beauty of naivety in many ways. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I set out and just began collating a lot of the research I'd done myself at university. So I'd, I'd stayed on and gone to night school and I was sort of writing that, but trying to tell stories within it. And I went and interviewed people like Richard Branson and Alex Ferguson and a guy called Angelo Dundee that was Muhammad Ali's trainer. And I went and interviewed all these amazing people and sort of uh, told their story around how they achieved high performance. And when I first sort of sampled it with some of the guys in the factory and asked them what they thought, they were still cynical. Could they had an excuse when Muhammad Ali was gifted, Richard Branson's parents were rich. That was why they were successful. So then I had the idea to tell the story of guys that actually worked in the factory alongside them as well. So there was a lad who uh, had um, some amazing stories. There was one bloke who his um he, he'd had to leave school at a really young age. And he, so he'd faced adversity like a lot of your uh, other guests had been on. And he had to leave school at a young age, but his ambition was to give his daughters the education they couldn't, that, that he'd never had. Now he couldn't afford to get his daughters into the best school. He couldn't afford the school fees, but he built a house. He bought a plot of land and he built a house that took him into the catchment area of the best schools in the area to get his daughters in and get them educated. And that, to me, was an impressive achievement as Richard Branson building the Virgin Empire that he subsequently went on to do. So I told his story in between the chapters. There was another guy who was a champion bodybuilder. There was a lad who had built his own canal boat because that was his hobby. And there was all these amazing stories of guys doing, which on the surface was some pretty sort of drab manual jobs. But they had these incredible 
backstories that where they'd used all the same mentality that Branson, Ferguson, Muhammad Ali and the likes had done. So I told their story in between each of the chapters and then I produced uh, 700 copies of the book. I went and paid for it myself and produced it just for the guys in the factory. So it was never to sell the book um, publicly. It was just to give them a, a, a manual. And what happened was um, it attracted quite a bit of interest when people heard about this strange idea that we've been doing. So I produced a few more copies to um, and sold them. And I used that to raise money for the boxing club where I'd grown up. And um, and then eventually it was bought by a public, the first two books, Liquid Leadership and Liquid Thinking, were my first two books. That A publisher came along eventually and uh, asked if they could buy the rights to them. But yeah, that was the origin story of it. Yeah, I see. And in terms of liquid thinking itself, how would you define what it means, liquid thinking? <laughs> well, that's a really good question, Connor. I think I often say there's a multiple choice answer to this. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the two choices and, allow, and I'll allow you and anyone listening to this to decide what they think is, is the real answer. One of the reasons that uh, liquid thinking is the name of the book and I use it uh, um, on in any sort of social media interaction is because I read many years ago, Edward de Bono, who's a creativity guru who passed away a few years ago, but de Bono spoke about that 80% of the mistakes that we make in life are what he attributed to solid thinking. And what he means by that is people that don't have the flexibility of perspective to see the world from somebody else's point of view or to maybe get more information that challenges perceptions. So by default, option A is that if, if most of our mistakes come from solid thinking, the opposite of that must be liquid thinking, the ability to be flexible and fluid. Option B is that when I was trying to think of a catchy title for the book, I was sat in a pub with my mate and we were brainstorming ideas and it was while we were looking over a pint that he suggested that liquid thinking was appropriate. So they're the two options, A or B. I'll allow you to decide uh, which one you think is uh, most realistic. Okay. <laughs> I'll have a think about that and see what the conclusion is. <laughs> but in terms of liquid <laughs> thinking for yourself, are there any examples throughout your own career with the work you do where flexible thinking, liquid thinking has come in handy for you? Oh, massively. So um, when, I mean, I was doing a job, uh, this particular role I was doing uh, was in the corporate world. And um, I faced a really interesting scenario um, where it's known in psychology as the Peter principle, where you get promoted to your own level of incompetence. And that was definitely the case for me. Um, I got promoted. Um, I eventually uh, was uh, promoted to a role of, a, of human resource director out in uh, South Africa and uh, the Middle East for a part of the business. And I found myself sat in meetings uh, debating stuff that I just found interminably bull, uh, dull. I was, I was bored. But the sort of natural career progression was to sort of keep following this career path. And the more I was following it, the more I was finding myself being dragged further away from my own passion. And uh, I remember one sat in a meeting in Durban in South Africa where we were debating margarine sales and how they dipped in the region. And I remember really clearly thinking, I don't care. There's not an atom in me that cares about this information. And yet everybody around me was looking like it was just some uh, terrible news. 
And I remember to my shame, I, f- I faked feeling upset about it. And it was that evening that I went home and I was sat in my apartment. And I remember thinking, I've got another 30 years of pretending to be, a, a, pretending to care and being a fraud. And that was quite a frightening thought for two reasons. One is if I stayed, it felt frightening. It felt like a compromise. But secondly, leaving the comfort of a job like that also felt frightening. But then having that ability to almost see the world from different perspectives and be flexible on it gave me the courage to to uh, to leap over 17 years ago now and set up my own consultancy business. So that's certainly been a part of it. And then I'd say over the last 17 years, as I've been sort of working for myself and going consulting for different teams and businesses, um, that requirement to, to be fluid, to be flexible, um, is a is a big requirement. I sometimes, uh, I've got just above my desk as I'm speaking to you now, a quote from a guy called Bill Bullard that I think sums up my role in many ways, that he says, opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it doesn't require you to do anything other than just offer your view of the world. Whereas Bullard argues the highest form of knowledge is empathy because empathy requires you to suspend your ego, to step into somebody else's world and to try and understand it from their perspective and I think that in many ways is liquid thinking to a T and that's what I often see the requirement of my role to do is not to turn up and tell people this is what you should do and to sort of dictate terms but to try and see it from their perspective and help them understand how they can do it in a more effective way. I think I do agree with you on that note about empathy. I do think it takes some flexibility to get there. Another theme that's came up there for me was honesty. Now, yep. I think you needed some honesty to realize, oh, I don't care about this information, so I need to go my separate way. And also yep. it brought me to a story that I've heard you mention on the podcast before about when you met Manny Stewart, I believe, when you were doing a yeah, yeah. biography. And um, you can obviously tell me the story, but I believe you said he said to you, how are you feeling? And you said, oh, it's great. And then he kind of stopped you and went, how are you really feeling? Do you mind telling me that story again? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, I was, um, there was a couple of occasions I was lucky enough to meet Manny Stewart. I mean, unfortunately, he's passed away now. But for those people who are not familiar with him, he was uh, he was the architect of a boxing gym in Detroit called the Cronk Boxing Gym that at one stage during its history was regarded as almost like the world's um, talent factory, not just in boxing, just in sport in general, because they had some, something like 30 world champions in a 25-year period, and that's just unprecedented. And, Ma- and Manny Stewart was probably the least educated man uh, I'd, I'd met, so he'd left school without any formal qualifications very young, but he was the most street smart by a million miles. And first time I met him was I was doing a biography of a guy called Thomas Hearns, who was a five-weight world champion that came from this gym. He regarded as a legend of the sport. And going out to Detroit, the experience was pretty intimidating, if I'm honest, Connor. So um, I, I, I was very conscious that I was a white guy going into an all-black neighborhood. So I stood out as an object of curiosity there. And then being an English guy in a in an American neighborhood as well, where you don't traditionally get tourists, again, made me even more of an object of curiosity. And some of the stuff you could see there, it was very, like, guns were very evident. The drug culture was very evident in the area. Uh, the crime rate was uh, was regarded, it made it a bit of a no-go zone. 
So the reason I mention that is there was lots of reasons to feel a little bit out of my comfort zone and sort of feel um, quite wary, I suppose. And I got in there anyway into the cronk and um, manager was waiting for me. And his first uh, question was, Damien, it's great to see you this morning. How do you feel? Now, intuitively, that's a lot of enthusiasm coming my way. So I responded with enthusiasm and said, it's great to meet you too, man. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for hosting me. Really looking forward to would you mind telling me the truth how do you really feel and the best way I can describe it Connor was I had verbal diarrhea in what followed next my mouth started talking independently in my brain as I started saying to him to be honest I'm nervous I feel out of my depth I know you're busy I don't want to waste your time and I just went on the stream of consciousness and again he was really kind he let me finish he said thanks for being honest he said that now means we can work together he said you stick with me I'm going to look after you now, when I got to know him a little bit better, I followed up on that. And I said, the first day we met Manny, why did you feel the need to ask me that second question? And his answer was, I always ask the second question. That was actually when we began working together. So I said, would you tell me more? And he said, well, he said, what I saw when you walked in for those doors was a nervous looking white English guy. And you're telling me that you're enthusiastically looking forward to being here. He said, the words and the pictures didn't match up. So the conclusion I reach is that you're either a liar or you're a sociopath. He said, so the second question just speeds that conversation along. We accelerated it. How do you really feel? And the second answer told me that you were telling lies. You were really feeling quite nervous, but you were doing your best to try and accommodate it. He said, so that made me understand you're a decent bloke, which was why I welcomed you. He said, but I work on that basis with every child that comes into my world feels the same way you do feel nervous frightened scared intimidated he said and i think i'm the best coach in the world but i can't coach you when those emotions are clouding your judgment so manny stewart describes his process as contain then explain and the point he means by that is contain your emotions make you feel valued make you feel respected make you feel cared for and once we've achieved that then we can start to explain how we're going to work together effectively and that's the Big, that's a summary of a big part of the work that I do when I go and work with coaches, creating an environment where people feel contained. They don't feel that they've got to look over the shoulder. They don't feel they're going to be ridiculed or made to feel small or inadequate. And once you've got that in place, then you can really start coaching and trying to enhance performance. Yeah. This is one of the themes that keeps coming up on the podcast. And I do want to delve into this in a few minutes. But before that, do you mind telling me a bit more about your book, The Barcelona Way? As in, why did you choose the Barcelona model to study? Yeah, yeah so the idea behind that book was um, I was lucky enough that um, that I uh, spent some time um, in Catalonia and got to know uh, two guys that were central to the success of Barcelona. One was a man called Ferenc Soriano and the second one was a guy called Chiqui Bagheerestein. And both of them were incredibly generous with the time and their insights in terms of how they'd made culture a competitive advantage when, uh, when they went in there at Barcelona. So in a world where pretty much every, every competitive advantage is being squeezed, they felt that culture was a great under-resourced or under-researched area. So the idea behind the book was to show how they'd used it. But more importantly, it was about explaining how anyone could take the same principles and use it in their own world. So... To explain it in a really quick synopsis, Connor, the idea is that there's 
when you put a group of people together, culture culture in terms of the norms and the expected behaviours will naturally start to form. But if you just roll the dice and just see what happens, what, what the research says is you'll get five, one of five different types of culture most commonly. So the five types of culture to explain now, you can have a star model, which is where you basically get your best players, the ones that run the show. You can have an autocratic model where you maybe get a powerful leader or a head coach that sets the tone. You can have a bureaucratic model where you've got um, a culture in place that's dominated by rules and regulations and policies and procedures. You can have an engineering culture, which is characterized by people with great technical expertise being the dominant characters. But what the research says is if you want a high performing culture, it's the fifth type that's your best guarantee of doing it. And the fifth type of culture is known as a commitment culture. And the commitment culture has two things at its very essence. One is a clear sense of purpose. Why do we do what we do? And then secondly, a really clear set of non-negotiable or what we call on the podcast, trademark behaviours, the rules of membership. You want to be a part of this. These are the rules that entitle you to become a part of it. And that's the route that Barcelona chose to take, that they went after the, the commitment model, which was they had this really clear sense of purpose, which was about they represented the very best of Catalonia to both Spain and the wider world. Their, their sense of mission, and I know you've mentioned that you've had Alistair Campbell on, so when you talk about that sense of uh, your, uh, your, uh, your mission underneath that, it's very much around, so the objective is about representing Catalonia, the mission that underpins it is very much around, you can play attractive football and win trophies, it's not an either or, it's a both and. And then the tactics of how they do it, the behaviours, that underpin it were around, we do this by representing the Catalan values of humility, hard work and team first. So what I looked at in that, in their case in specifically was how when they appointed Pep Guardiola to take over, he came in with this really clear sense of mission of what he was trying to do and then invested an awful lot of time and energy in imposing the tactics, the behaviours about how they were going to get there. But significantly, and what I wanted the book to achieve was that I wanted people to understand how they can, they can do the same thing in their own world. Because it's, I, I would accept the criticism that somebody would say, yeah, but you've chosen to research this topic in a place where Lionel Messi and at the time, Xavi and Iniesta and Puyol and some of the greatest players in football history were playing the trade. And that's a fair challenge. But when I, I mentioned this to uh, Cheeky Bagiristain, his answer was brilliant in, in response to it. He said, talent will get you as far as the dressing room door. Behaviour will decide how long we keep you there for. And that, to me, emphasises the importance of culture, that talent is almost a prerequisite. You've got to be able to do your job, whatever your job is. But then beyond the, that talent, it's then about how you conduct yourself, and that's what culture is. And that's where it can be a great competitive advantage. I see. And we are going to talk more about the culture from the podcast view. But um, the final sure. thing in the books, um, you mentioned uh, well that Sir Alex Ferguson, you wrote a book, How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Uh, what is What do you think is the reason why he managed to go for 26 years and outlast his competitors in ways that maybe... Wenger and Mourinho didn't? Well, that's a really smart question, I think. And that was the sort of um, 
it was it was trying to answer that question that sort of intrigued me to want to write the book. Um, I think beyond the talent of being an incredibly gifted um, football um, manager and understanding football, I think there was three things that uh, for, that differentiated Ferguson from his rivals, as you say, like Wenger and uh, Mourinho, to name but two. And I think the three things that differentiate them are often sort of missed in an analysis of Ferguson's career, which is where um, my research concluded on. The first one was that Ferguson was incredibly skilled at managing upwards. You know, he, this is one of the pieces of advice he gives to young coaches now is, don't choose a club, choose your employer. So choose the person that's giving you the job. So what Ferguson did was, if you remember, he came in in 1986 and he didn't win the trophy till 1990. So that four years, there's not many coaches would be given that kind of uh, leeway and patience these days. But when I sort of interviewed some of the decision makers around it, they were clear that Ferguson was always very good at managing upwards and keeping them abreast of where he was working on. So they understood that he was sowing seeds and he was fixing cultural issues that had been neglected for years in the build-up to it. So their reasoning was that if they were to sack Ferguson for not winning trophies at that stage, any decent coach that they would appoint in his um, it, um, to replace him would only have to come in and work on the same areas that he was already investing so much time and energy on. So I think managing upwards and, keep, and keeping that communication uh, lines open was a really important skill that he was particularly good at. I think another trait that Ferguson had was that uh, he thought long-term. So success afforded him the ability to do this, but he viewed teams in four-year cycles. So rather than view things over a one-year cycle, he would make a decision maybe in year two that he knew wouldn't bring its rewards till the fourth year. But he felt he, that by viewing things over that cycle, it gave him the ability to sustain success because he could, Say like he, he maybe got rid of someone like um, Paul Lintz when there was still maybe a couple of years um, potentially could have got out of him. But because he was viewing it over a four-year cycle, he knew that he had that crop of young players like Scholes and Butt in particular in midfield that needed to come through. And that in that by the time Lintz had maybe reached his sell-by date two years later, those young players wouldn't have had the experience unless he'd have viewed things over that long-term cycle. So... I think that's a really important skill that, again, lots of coaches, for lots of good reasons, don't view things over that longer window. They tend to view things in shorter term. And then the final quality he had was he wasn't afraid of bringing in people to plug gaps in his own knowledge. So, what, for example, that if you compare him to Arsene Wenger in their first 20 years, because I think that's a, a, a fair comparison in terms of both of their careers, Arsene Wenger had one assistant in his first 20 years at Arsenal, Pat Rice, whereas in that same period, Ferguson had seven assistants. And I think the reason that he had that is because he was bringing in people to plug gaps in, where he, in things he couldn't do. So he brought in Archie Knox down from Aberdeen with him when he first came, and Archie Knox was known as quite an authoritarian, strict enforcer of the rules that maybe were a little bit lax. And then he replaced the uh, Archie Knox with Brian Kidd, and that coincided with the rise of young players like the class of 92 that Kidd had helped nurture. 
So he was helpful in that transition stage. When those players matured, he brought in uh, Steve, Steve McLaren that was regarded as a particularly innovative coach at the time. Then when they started to compete in Europe, he brought in Carlos Quieras, who was a specialist in sort of tactics and skills like that. So I'm just giving you four examples there of people that had a different skill set than maybe what Ferguson had. And yet he had um, the courage and the lack of ego in many ways to bring those people in to support his own approach. So three things there that I think answer your question, Connor. One was that the lines of communication with his bosses was always very good. He thought long-term rather than short-term. And he surrounded himself with people that plugged gaps in his knowledge that, um, that, that he wasn't afraid to, uh, to address. Absolutely. And with that, Damien, let's move on to High Performance, the High Performance podcast. How did that all yep. come about? It's been about 18 months, is that right? Yeah, well, two years since we had the idea. So um, uh, Jake um, is a huge Norwich City fan and he lives in, uh, in Norfolk. And I was doing some work with Norwich City, the football club, in the year that they got promoted. And uh, I did a uh, session for the players and all the staff at Norwich where we were talking about creating high-performing cultures. And um, we've got a mutual friend, Stuart Webber, who's the sports uh, sporting director at Norwich. And mm. he invited Jake to come along. And I'd met Jake and his father at a dinner and got on well with them and we had a laugh. And then when we got chatting over dinner, uh, we were speaking about how Jake had this insight that I was fortunate to have from my own background, but he describes it in his words that when he was covering Formula One for the BBC, he would find himself in these uh, in the pit lanes with these billionaire team bosses and these superstar drivers and these team managers. He said, and he always before this had the assumption that these people knew a secret, something that nobody else knew. And he said, and when he was talking to them, he'd ask them, what is the secret? What do you know that nobody else does? And the answer kept coming back repeatedly was, there is no secret. And this is what I'd learned from a young age of seeing the work that happens in the shadows in boxing, for example, reveals itself under the bright lights. And we sort of, sort of both had come to this same understanding of, well, wouldn't it be great if you could share this knowledge with people that we've been lucky enough to have with, where we... we um, to share about understanding, about persistence, about the power of mindset, surrounding yourself with good people, the importance of courage, and share it with people from the mouths of people that have been there that were telling us the same stories privately. So we we had this idea of doing it, and then we sort of pulled together a, uh, a list of contacts that we both knew, people that we felt we had a relationship of trust. Because to start that, like you, you might have that intention, but to get people to come along and talk about this stuff, they need to trust you that you're not going to make them look silly or try and focus just on their mistakes or yeah, make them feel uh, ridiculous. So we started by sort of having a look at people who we had a high level of trust from our own uh, careers. So Jake had a number of them, like Rio Ferdinand and Robin Van Persie, for example. I was lucky enough to know, say, Tracy Neville and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And when we reached out to them and explained what we're trying to do, they, they got the idea. So that gave us a bit of momentum in series one that we sat down with them and just started recording. And what we were getting was the kind of conversations that we'd both been lucky enough 
to have privately, but these people were really open and honest, happy to talk, say like with Ole, happy to talk about um, his stint as a manager at Cardiff City that hadn't gone well. Now, he very rarely speaks about that, but he explained some of his lessons about why it hadn't gone well and what he'd learned from it. And we both felt we were getting real value from it, even as we were recording it, we were thinking that it was really good stuff. And then we put it out after the first series. And uh, there was a community of people that just got it, just got what we were trying to do and sort of not telling people it was about talent. We were not telling people you can be a millionaire or you can win a gold medal or you can sort of build a big business. What we're saying was you can take the same principles of high performance and apply it to your own life, wherever you are. And I think a community of people really it resonated. And what happened with that was that I think other people then heard it who, when we approached them, they went, yeah, yeah, we get what you're trying to do. So that allowed us to invite a wide range of people that maybe we didn't know and didn't have that relationship on. And I think it's just grown and snowballed a bit from there, really, that we've been fortunate now to have done. We're counting up the other day. We've done 75 of these interviews today. Oh, wow. We've not put all of them out yet, but yeah. they've all been pretty incredible. Like every one of them has had something to teach us as hosts, not just uh, people that are listening. Yeah. And with that, I, I believe you asked this question. Is it possible for anyone to be a high performer? Well, again, that's a really good question. And I'd say, in my reflection on it, I've come to a conclusion. So if I can give you my definition of high performance, I, I think by, uh, by default, it will answer your question of can anybody be it? Mm. I think my, my preferred definition of high performance is it's doing the best you can, the knowledge you've got in the moment you're in. So 13 word summary of it. So wherever you are at this moment in time, so it, what this says is with your level of talent and with the knowledge and the resources you've got, it's about getting the most out of your level of talent. So if you put me on a track in the Olympic hundred meters final in a couple of weeks in Tokyo, am I going to win a gold medal? Well, no, I'm not. I'm not a high performance sprinter. But if I applied the same mindset, the same training and the same approach that those guys that will be on the starting line, will I deliver a, my version of high performance as a sprinter? Yeah, I would. I would improve my performance, definitely, based on, on the same approach. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to win a gold medal. I would just win my own version of a gold medal and do my own personal best. So I think... The answer to that is that anyone can achieve their own version of high performance, which is doing the best you can with the knowledge you've got in the moment you're in. And I think part of the, what that also leads us to in understanding high performance is that you might look back at, I, I know you've done 130 odd of these interviews now, Connor. So you might look back at the first few, that, few interviews that you've done and you might go, oh, I wouldn't have asked that question or maybe I could have phrased that a little bit better or, Maybe I'd have done it differently this time. And that's, and that's great to reflect on that. But, my, but in the moment you were in, with the knowledge you had, you did the best you could. Do you see what I mean? So it's Absolutely. a constantly evolving version of it. Yeah, of course. And with that then, with the interviews that you've conducted so far, are there any key traits that stand out amongst all of the high performers that, yeah, that goes across the board? Yeah, so we just 
completed a book that comes out on the 9th of December on this, which which attempts to answer that very question of what are the traits? So everybody's in different... So we've interviewed a wide range of people from across sport, business, education, and the art. So nobody's sort of in the same field in many ways. They're all in different worlds. But we've looked at what the common trends behind them. And what we found is there's eight, there's eight consistent traits that all of these high performers do. So I'll give you a really simple one, which is about understanding where the locus of control lies. So having what psychologists describe as high self-efficacy. And what that means is they just take responsibility. Mm. That they might find themselves in situations not their fault, but it's their responsibility to make the best of it. So a really neat example is we interviewed a young man called Billy Munger, who at seven, 17 was racing in Formula 4. It wasn't his fault. He had a catastrophic car crash where there was cars that had stopped. He was coming around the corner blind, uh, plowed into the back of them. Woke up five days later with uh, both his legs amputated. Now, he says himself, he like everybody else, was horrified by it, but he asked if he could get the, the footage of the crash so he could understand how it had happened. And he gave us that phrase. He said, I looked at the crash and went, it wasn't my fault, but it's now my responsibility to make the best of my life. So within six months of that, he, he had himself uh, some um, artificial legs and was back behind the wheel of a Formula 4 racing car, make, determined to make the best of the situation he was in. So that's a real key trait for all our high performers, that it's about understanding where that locus of control lies and accepting that pointing the finger and blaming others is a waste of time and energy. It's about investing the time in um, looking at yourself first. Another one is that they've all crashed and burned badly. They've all allowed themselves to um, be, have emotional outbursts. They've sort of, so, uh, some of them have described in real quite uh, forensic detail the sort of uh, emotional meltdowns that they've had. But they see that just as the start of the journey, not, not the end of it. So they see that as a chance to go and explore more of why did it happen how did it happen? And just as importantly, how they can avoid it happening in the future. So we've described that as high levels of emotional intelligence that all our high performers have when it comes to um, performing under pressure. Again, another trait, just thinking about it, is um, they also have this idea of these non-negotiable behaviours. They're all really clear about standards of behaviour that they won't compromise on. And what they're particularly good at doing is communicating those up front so that you understand the, that you don't try and take them on on this. So I'll give you a really neat story on it. that When we interviewed Sir Chris Hoy, the eight gold medal winning uh, cyclist, Olympic cyclist, our appointed interview time was 10 o'clock, 10 to 10. There's a knock on the door when we go and open it. Chris Hoy stood outside and... I sort of introduced myself and we're making each other, we're making a cup of tea and just chatting. And I casually said, thanks for turning up on time, Chris. It makes the day go so much easier. And what he did next was fascinating. He took a front, he took offense. He was affronted. And when I explained, I wasn't trying to cause him offense. I just wondered, um, I was just explaining how it made the day go easier. His point was, he said, if I showed up any later than 10 to 10, he said, that would imply that I would consider my time more important than yours by definition. I'd consider that I'd indicate that I think I'm more important than you. And he said, and that's unthinkable. He said, 
uh, are committed to be at 10 o'clock, 10 to 10 is the minimum standard. So when we interviewed him in, in on the podcast and our question was, what are your three non-negotiable behaviours? It might not come as any surprise to you, Connor, that his answer was respect, humility and commitment. Mm. Now in that one anecdote that I've just shared with you there, this is six years after his retirement at the time, you've got respect for other people in their time, humility not to assume that his eight Olympic gold medals are 40 million extra status and the commitment to follow through and do what he said he would do. Now, he, he would argue that those were the foundation stones of his very success. They weren't nice add-ons. These were things that, that were sort of the foundation zones of what he was trying to achieve in the first place. So just very quickly then to answer the question, there's, we discovered eight traits in many ways, but there are three of them, this idea of taking responsibility, having a level of emotional intelligence and exploring what that means and having a set of non-negotiable behaviours that you and everyone around you has to buy into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the podcast theme that I've come up with is comeback from adversity. You also talk about adversity on high performance. This question, I'm not sure if it's tricky, but would you say, based on the guests that you've interviewed, that often failure can be more important than success? It's a good question. I would say failure plus reflection can be more important to success. So failure on its own is horrible. It tastes bitter. It's it's not to be welcomed by anybody, but it's what happens after it. So Matthew McConaughey, the Oscar winning actor when we spoke about him, said if you keep standing in shit and you keep going around the track and standing in the same shit, you're not learning anything. But you can stand in shit once and then reflect and go, right, why did that happen? What did I learn about it? How to avoid it next time? And you avoid that. That's that's an improvement. So I think failure is important as long as it's married up with really effective reflection. But on its own, no, I'd say that uh, it's not something to be welcomed. Yeah, absolutely. And we're nearly at the end of the conversation. Is there... I've enjoyed it. Yeah, is there any favourite key benefits that have come for you as a result of the podcast? Oh, wow, that's a really good question. Uh, Yes, there's been loads. Um, I just feel so privileged, if I'm honest, Connor, that I've I've loved doing it. I've loved having the opportunity to sit down with some of these incredible people and just have them speak so openly and honestly um, about the lessons that they've learned. I think part of our purpose behind doing it was that was that we wanted to share there is no secret but we wanted to give this away for people we didn't try to monetize it so we've not put this stuff behind a paywall or tried to charge people for it we've given it away for free so we've not done it to make money for ourselves because it's actually cost us money to do that and that's fine but I think it's been about tapping into that sense of purpose for both myself and for Jake and the community of people, whether these are the, the interviewees or people that have listened to it, that have responded accordingly, has been just so gratifying. Yeah, of course. And do you have any aims for the future? You've mentioned the book. The cover was released today, I believe. That's right, yeah. So uh, the book comes out on the 9th of December, So, but it can be pre-ordered. Like you can pre-order signed copies of the book uh, from today. So um, if there's anybody listening to this that maybe is intrigued, please have a look at it. Uh, so yeah, we, we've got um, we've got series uh, five 
Uh, we're just about to finish that over the next couple of weeks. We're doing a series of Olympic interviews at the moment that we're releasing. Um, so we did, uh, we've got Adam Peaty due to come. We've got uh, Jason Kenny. Um, uh, uh, we've got Helen Richardson Walsh. Uh, they're all due to come out over the next few weeks, uh, like incredible Olympians sharing their stories. And then we're going to have a bit of a break over the summer. And then uh, we start again with, we've recorded a lot of series six uh, that's already been done. And we've set up a, again, a free site called the high performance circle where mm. we release early uh, podcast episodes on there. Uh, we have a newsletter and we have a series of sort of like mini keynote speeches and Ted talks from uh, people that, Again, it's all free resource if people want to, uh, want to go and have a look at it. Sounds great. And the final question, Damien, that I have to yeah. ask you, what are three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you have to buy into? <laughs> well, that's a familiar question. Uh, I've thought about this quite a lot. The, my first one is kindness. Well, kindness isn't to be compromised with. And when I talk about kindness, I start with kindness to myself. I think given the theme of your podcast, Connor, we all face adversity, we all face setbacks, we all make mistakes, we all get put on our backside. And I think when you start by being kind to yourself and accepting that we, that will happen to all of us, but it's not something that we need to beat ourselves up about, we can start by being kind. I think then that gives us the capacity to come back. It gives us the capacity to be kind to other people, to create a community of people around us that will cheer us on and help us on our way. So kindness is the first of um, my non-negotiable behaviours. And like, I, I don't tend to spend a lot of time on social media because I find often it's not a particularly kind environment. It can be yeah, quite toxic. Cool. Yeah. Um, my second uh, non-negotiable behaviour is have fun. So that's a big part of like getting this podcast out. Again, it is something that or when I talk to people or whether I consult, having fun is a really important characteristic. And this came when I reflected on my own school experience and the best lessons that I can remember were the ones where I was having a laugh. I was learning, but I was learning by having fun and having a laugh. So I think if you can introduce an element of lighthearted fun and having a bit of humor involved in whatever you do, that's important. And then the third one is to make a positive difference uh, in a situation. So my dad used to say to me when I was a kid, he'd say, if nobody would notice your absence, that would mean that your presence hasn't made a difference. And I think that's a really important thing to work out. How can you add to any situation when you go into a situation? How can you add value rather than what can I take from this? It's what can I offer this situation? So take, for example, when you dropped me a line to ask me to, come and chat on this Connor it was a real honor to be asked but I want to come on and do the best I can for you to offer value for you and for anyone listening to this and then that therefore is a is almost a validation of my own non-negotiable behaviors absolutely well Damien you just mentioned there uh, about the honor the honor is mine I've listened to this podcast since I believe September and ever since then it's been a part of the commute I feel like out of the 75 episodes, I've probably listened to at least 70. Like, I've really gone Brilliant. Through. Thank you. So, thank you very much for the work you do. Keep it up. And I look forward to hearing more at season six and reading the book. Oh, well, thank you, Connor. And again, thanks to 
for you especially, anyone that's kind enough to listen to this, uh, I appreciate that in a world of choice, um, for anybody that made that choice to listen and to have stayed with it as long as they have is uh, is uh, incredibly humbling. So thank you. Thank you. Take care, Damien. Cheers, mate.